Hi, I'm Jason Pritchard, and welcome to the EVTOR Insights Podcast, a brilliant show featuring guests from companies in the EVTOR aircraft and urban air mobility markets. Throughout each episode, we'll be finding out about their exciting projects, which will help revolutionise the way we travel in future and get their insights into the current state of the industry. In this episode, I'm joined by Brandon Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Horizon Aircraft. The company is based north of Toronto, Ontario in Canada and is building what it says is the next generation of EVTOR machines. With a focus on safety, practicality and operational flexibility, multiple patents protect a first of its kind design. So Brandon, thank you so much for joining us on the EVTOR Insights podcast. Thanks, Jason, and pr- pleasure to be here. Brandon, I've kind of alluded a little bit to Horizon Aircraft, but I know you've got a really fascinating background, um, so I'd love to hear more about that, if possible, and really how you started in the aviation sector. Yeah, well, again, thanks, Jason. Um, well, I think my genesis story is a little unique in the industry. So, I mean, we I grew up flying airplanes. I think I think my first trip in an airplane was when I was six months old. We had an old Republic CB at home, so an old flying boat. You can picture kind of a pusher prop at the back, kind of a uh, high wing with pontoons, lands on the water. Also, it's amphibious, so it could land on the land as well. Um, and my grandfather was an old World War II uh, bomber pilot who also had uh, an aircraft at home. So I grew up uh, flying airplanes, um, and my father was a pilot as well, building airplanes, fixing airplanes. And that led to sort of a I think it imprinted on me from a certain perspective uh, and aviation has kind of always been a part of my life. Um, near the end of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was you know, going to be an engineer like my father. Um, and I was working at a gas station for, uh, for a, an interesting individual who saw something in me. He said, Hey man, you can, you know, you can join the air force. And if you're good enough, you can maybe fly jets in the air force too. Like uh, kind of like Maverick and Top Gun. And, uh, you know, I'd seen that movie as a child and Top Gun too, by the way, pretty awesome movie if anyone's not seen that. Uh, but I digress. And so uh, they, no kidding, uh, shut down the gas station for a day with my parents' permission, uh, drove me down to Royal Military College. So for those who don't don't know, there's a, one military academy in Canada. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to get into it, um, you know, they pay for military training, they pay for a really first-class education. Um, and so we went down and checked out RMC and uh, I signed up literally two weeks later. Um, was fortunate enough to get accepted to the pilot program and the rest is sort of history. Went through four years, met a lot of really awesome people uh, throughout military college and then streamed uh, as a pilot. Uh, again, very fortunate. I managed to uh, fly jets for the better part of two decades in the Air Force. Uh, did the Top Gun course along the way, the Canadian version of it anyway, uh, which was pretty awesome. Uh, and something maybe I don't want to repeat again, <laughs> you know, fun in hindsight sort of thing, like a lot of military training. But uh, yeah, I had two amazing decades in the Air Force, got a mechanical engineer degree along the way and, a, and an advanced business degree. But I was always uh, really excited uh, in business and engineering as well. So, you know, after a couple of decades flying, uh, it was either sort of move on to the upper echelons in the Air Force, and which meant, you know, flying quite a bit less. Uh, which I didn't want to do, or potentially have a chance to flex some engineering muscles and learn some things about business. Um, and my father was concurrently running a high-tech aerospace company uh, out of Southern Ontario. So doing advanced modifications for aircraft in the general aviation space, a lot of electrification. You know, he's always been very forward-looking, uh, uh, my father. Um, 
he'd been building and, and fixing airplanes since he was 14 years old um, and lifelong pilot as well. And, uh, you know, we had an opportunity to build a business around a brand new prototype design, actually. What were then the reasons for setting up Horizon Aircraft? You know, you mentioned your your father being a, a really a, a brilliant mind when it comes to sort of aircrafts in, in general as well. But I'd love to sort of hear that backgrounds behind setting up Horizon Aircraft. And really, were there any particular issues that you were trying to solve as a result of that? Well, actually, it's interesting. Something a lot of people don't know is that Horizon Aircraft was originally founded to support uh, the design of the unique new amphibious aircraft. So we had that old Republic CV, again, old 1947 flying boat type aircraft in it. It's incredibly useful. I mean, we would load, you know, fish and tackle into it five o'clock in the morning and fly up to a camp 20, mi- 20 minutes north of the lake that we lived on. So north of Balsam Lake, Ontario, um, land, uh, you know, haul a boat out of the bushes, throw everything onto the uh, boat and go fishing. Um, equally at home, you know, put the gear down and land at a small airstrip somewhere uh, unique. And we used to go all sorts of uh, different places. And it really was formative in my childhood. It, was, it showed me uh, how incredible aviation was. Um, and we had an idea to build a new type of amphibious aircraft. So, you know, have that same kind of very unique design uh, built with modern composites, modern power plant. Um, and so the company was originally formed around that. Uh, we had an investor that was very interested concurrently about um, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. So as we tried to you know, increase, increase, increase the utility of this new amphibious aircraft, making it get in and out of shorter and shorter runways, um, you know, we started looking heavily at the eVTOL uh, space. Uh, and the investor asked us, you know, is it possible to build an airplane that, you know, instead of taking off in five, 600 feet like you guys are building, a sort of a short takeoff and landing, could you build an eVTOL? And so... Now, the first thing we did is honestly take a look at the market and, uh, you know, does it make sense to build a machine like this? What would the missions be? You know, I come from a pretty deep operational background in the, you know, I know that the air environment can be pretty harsh and it also has to make business sense. So can you make money with this machine like this, uh, with, with such a machine? And the, you know, the result of our research was overwhelmingly, yes, you can, but it has to have the following specifications. And so, you know, we uh, distilled a set of specifications that really said this airplane has to go on the order of, you know, 500 miles with the reserves, has to be fast, has to be operationally simple uh, and flexible. And that kind of ended up in the uh, in the design of what you see as the Calvary X5 uh, on our website. So um, fundamentally, I think trying to reshape the way people think about regional air transport. So now if you have an aircraft that can get, get in and out of a tennis court size location, I mean, it really starts to open up regional air transport. So um, Jason, I, I read a really interesting article from NASA. He said in the United States alone, I think there was 5,000 underutilized regional airports. The average person, I think, traveling two plus hours uh, to an airport, even for a short trip. So good example is you know, myself, I go down to Pearson uh, from where I live here in Whitby. It's about an hour and a half drive. You know, I get there about two and a half hours early here in COVID. It was uh, even earlier than that. I just sit around and wait and go through security, um, you know, hop on the airplane, wait some more. And then I fly, you know, an hour to Ottawa or wherever it is. And then I get off the airport. I get off the airplane and, and, and go through the same reverse process, hop in an Uber. And I mean, it's, you know, 10 hours from door to door, at least to, you know, maybe fly an hour and a half. And I think from a certain perspective, the airlines, uh, you know, to their benefit and profitability have kind of retaught us how to think uh, about regional transport. And, you know, we're sort of blinded by the fact that this is kind of the norm now. 
But if we use those 5,000 underutilized regional airports, even in the US, I think that same study said we could take uh, the average time in, 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 the, in the car for a person, for example, from two hours each way to and from that airport to about 15 minutes. And I don't know if anyone's ever, you know, taken a train recently, which uh, is, is was fantastic. Uh, you know, I take Via all the time. There's zero friction. You walk into the train station 10 minutes before your train, away you go. The same with Porter Airlines down in um, out of the Island Airport in Toronto. You, you walk in, it's very low friction, 15 minutes before your flight. Uh, they do, you know, security check. And then you get on your regional sort of travel and you, you, you travel to wherever you're going to go um, and then potentially hop on a larger airliner from there and, and go your further distance. So um, I think there's definitely a better way to do regional travel. And again, this uh, aircraft that we're designing is you know, going to fill that niche. We mentioned it very briefly in your previous answers as well. That's the Cavra X5. Now, we really appreciated you talking to us in a bit of detail about the aircraft. Right. Oh, God, probably probably one, maybe even two years since we, when, since when we first started as well um, at EVTOL Insights. And I know what was really nice is it got a lot of attention, certainly from our audience, but also from other outlets and other people from across the industry and also across the world as well. But for those who might not be familiar or want to learn a bit more, uh, are you able to sort of share any more sort of details on the technical side of the design, especially um, its patented wing system that enables that highly efficient operational flight? Yeah, so it's interesting. When we were looking at those regional... Um, sort of distances that we, you know, we needed to capture in order to make it make business sense. Um, you know, we were trying to figure out what is the best way to, uh, you know, to get range and speed. And, you know, overwhelmingly, it was not sort of an octocopter design uh, where it's, or even like traditional helicopters are completely designed around the takeoff and landing phase. And as you know, the, the going from point A to point B, uh, suffer from that uh, sort of design concession, you know, where they're, uh, en route, they're relatively draggy. They can't go very, very quick, um, and it's relatively inefficient. And so, I mean, the most efficient way to go to point from point A to point B in an aircraft is just traditional old wingborne flight, as minimum drag as possible, um, in a selected configuration. And we thought it made more sense for 98% of the mission if you could build an aircraft that flew exactly like a normal aircraft in a configuration that was very low drag. That would make more sense. And we would take the engineering hit up front for the vertical takeoff and landing portion where we'd burn a little more energy. Um, and so that resulted in a unique wing design. And so we thought if we could return the wing to a normal uh, configuration en route, that would be ideal. And so we, we came up with, it was a unique sort of clamshell operation for the layperson. Uh, for those uh, technically savvy, it's like a slat and a flap sort of on a commercial airline. So in its vertical mode, the wings and the canards of the aircraft are open. So the forward section slides forward and the rear section slides backwards and it reveals an array of electrically powered lift fans in both the canards and the main wings. Um, yeah, when these fire up, uh, they're powered by both an array of batteries and an onboard generator that has rectified power going to them. Uh, that provides enough vertical lifting force to lift the aircraft off vertically. So just like a helicopter. Um, now, very quickly, we transition to forward flight, engage a rear pusher prop, and when the aircraft gets to a certain speed, that clamshell situation closes. So the leading edge slides back, the trailing edge slides forward, and it completely hides the array of vertical lifting fans in both the main wings and the canard. And once, that's, once that happens, the aircraft is flying around in a, con a configuration exactly like a normal aircraft, which is extremely low drag. Um, and that's how we get our pretty incredible performance number. So... You know, simulations say 280 knots easily, but, you know, of course, below 10,000 feet will be limited to do about 250 knots. 
So it's very fast. And that's where we get our regional ranges as well. Um, one thing we did realize uh, right away is that there's just, you know, battery technology is not quite there for this type of machine. And so, you know, gas still has about 20 times the energy density per unit mass that uh, even the best batteries do in the world. So we have batteries on board only to enable that vertical uh, takeoff capability. Um, and the main power system is a hybrid electric power system. Um, and so there's a generator on board that will rectify the power and, and kind of through a dual bus system, uh, provide uh, electrical energy for vertical takeoff and landing. So after, for example, a vertical takeoff, the aircraft transitions forward, closes its wings in its canard. Now you're flying like a normal aircraft, but now the aircraft can also recharge itself. So some of the um, power from the gas burning motor is diverted through the generators and now can recharge the, the battery rate on uh, en route, uh, which I think is pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Um, also, once you land, you know, you, of course, you have a demanding vertical portion there that's going to burn through a lot of electricity. The aircraft, as long as there's gas on board, can recharge itself. Now, when you land in a remote location, that's also a remote power generation station, which is pretty cool when you think about maybe a disaster relief mission where some hurricane has rolled through and the power grid is down, et cetera. Because these aircraft are going to go, I think, a lot of places um, that may not have the infrastructure. I mean, that's what they're built for, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft for the most part. Those initial use cases will be going to places where there may not be the infrastructure for charging uh, in place. And so I think it uh, really starts to round itself out as a, as, a, as a complete operational package at that point. Excellent. Thanks ever so much for that, Brandon. And I guess you, you've kind of probably touched upon it in your previous answer, but also um, about the reasons for setting up Horizon as well. But I wonder whether you could add any extra thoughts into what value then the Cavra X5 could bring to this advanced demobility market in general. I know that there's quite a lot of use cases that, this, that the X5 could be used for when it is commercial, but also in, in the future when um, other pressing needs arise too. Well, great question. I think... <clears throat> You know, our, our aircraft is fundamentally designed for early deployment. So early use cases fulfilling sort of prescient business um, cases right now uh, is kind of our motto. So some good examples, emergency medical services. So if you have an aircraft that can go twice as fast as a medevac helicopter, which ours can, um, you know, you can get someone to the hospital in literally half the time from the same distance. Conversely, if you, you know, if you can get someone from twice the distance during that golden hour to to get critical care at the hospital, I think that's that's a pretty cool early use case. It's also cheaper uh, to operate and it'll be cheaper to procure uh, than a helicopter as well. So really interesting, while I'm on that topic actually, it just reminded me of a, a really interesting study that came out of Alberta here in Canada. Um, only 16% of all medevac calls, um, aerial medevac calls were, uh, were answered. And so you, know, you had a, basically a one in, what is that? One in six chance or one in seven chance um, of getting the, the medevac critical you know, transport that you needed if you were critically injured on the side of a road, for example. Now, if we can more widely proliferate um, these types of machines, I mean, you're saving lives in the short term, and that's just a no-brainer. Um, same goes with organ transport. So getting organs from point A to point B in a much quicker way um, in a much lower operating cost environment. I mean, Blade's revenue model is about half um, organ transport right now. Not a lot of people know that, which is interesting. Um, yeah, disaster relief, remote resupply. So we're talking Canadian Northern communities. Uh, you know, you can imagine these aircraft, you know, highly efficient aircraft taking off maybe out of a logistics hub carrying COVID um, vaccines or some future vaccine and hitting some Northern communities. 
that may not have the infrastructure. Now you can, your logistics supply chain, instead of ice roads hauling these things up that go in and out, um, now you can have a much more efficient way of, of getting critical supplies to those northern communities, which I'd be very proud of uh, our machine being used for. Um, you integrate that across the entire world. Now any country that doesn't have that same road infrastructure, uh, instead of you know building billions and billions of dollars of roads, having to maintain them every year, which is you know just too heavy a lift for a lot of developing nations. Now you have ways um, to get things to where they need to go. So if you, you know, everything from battling smallpox uh, epidemic to again COVID relief supp supplies, um, all sorts of really cool uh, missions globally. Because we always think about in a North American context where things are relatively uh, sorted out. Um, yeah, so I think we bring a lot again to the advanced air mobility market in the short term, which I think is pretty pretty cool. We don't have to wait until um, the skies over New York open up with kind of Jetsons like regulations where everyone's flying everywhere. Um, so we don't require any complex regulatory concessions for overflight of densely populated areas. I mean, we fly between them right now, which is uh, something we'll start to do earlier rather than later, which I'm pretty excited about. Does Horizon Aircraft have a current roadmap to commercial service? And I know also because you very kindly shared a picture of your 50% prototype model earlier this year. So I'd love to get an idea of that current roadmap, but also I'd love you also to share a bit more about how sort of the hover testing is going. As I understand that's sort of kind of that next step of the development for you too. Yeah, 100%. So thanks. Um, yeah, well, we're, we're flying a large scale prototype right now, which is fantastic. I mean, that 50% scale prototype is 22 foot wingspans, 15 feet long, weighs close to 500 pounds. So it I mean, for all intents and purposes, when you look at it, it looks like a small general aviation aircraft. And so it's larger than some of the quote unquote full scale prototypes um, that are flying out there from, from larger companies. Um, and we will have a piloted version within the next 24 to 30 months, which, uh, which is on the roadmap. Certification process for us begins very soon as well. We've talked to both the FAA and Transport Canada. Um, they're very interested in the design and, and, and relieved from a certain perspective along those lines. We can talk maybe more in depth about certification later, but having an aircraft that flies around 98% of the time looking and talking and uh, acting exactly like a normal aircraft that they're used to certifying uh, puts them in a good spot, um, which is which is pretty fantastic. It at least starts us off in a you know, from a common ground perspective in a good spot. Uh, we're targeting 2025, 2026 entry into service. And now uh, people think that that's um, pretty aggressive for us. Initial entry may take a number of different forms. So I think you had Randy Plout on um, on a previous podcast. Uh, fantastic guy. Honestly, we're aligned on a lot of different things. Uh, and he has a very practical sort of approach to initial entry. Now, you, you don't just build an airplane and then just, uh, you know, certify it and send it out and build thousands in my mind. Um, there's an actual, you know, process that you have to go through. You build a couple of them, you learn a lot about you know, how they act, you got to harden them in a bunch of different places. So you need a lot of data. And so there could be an initial entry um, as a personal use model and possibly even like a part 91 under an experimental category. So we're, we're in discussions with a certain company, I can't name names, but, you know, potentially on a not-for-profit basis on experimental, um, uh, under an experimental construct, you can send a fleet of jets out, operate them very, very carefully um, over non-populated areas. So potentially, for example, um, you know, oil, uh, platform resupply. And so taking workers again, on not, not for profit basis to and from oil, um, platforms in the Gulf, uh, overflying again, no populated areas, uh, and you're gaining data and you're learning about your machine that you're building. 
and you can go through a re-engineering process and then and then finally get it to the point where you can uh, where you can sell it so um there's a lot of really interesting early ways that we can generate revenue just like Randy was talking about on the podcast uh, and we may in fact take advantage of some of those and instead of waiting until a full certification is complete and we go into LRIP uh, on a fully certified version. Another really um, excellent sort of uh, thing that we've talked about as well is really the strong working partnership that Horizon Aircraft and many other companies in this space have with Afworks, especially after Horizon completed its HSV toll phase one. So I'd love to get your thoughts then. What was the significance of this work and how will, do you think it will help, I guess, not only Horizon in the future, but perhaps other startups that are going to go down that route too? Yeah, I won't lie, it was, it was a pretty big deal. So having the United States Air Force and Special Forces Command sort of stamp of approval uh, on the design, I mean, we were one of only 11 companies out of 220 plus that applied uh, for the high-speed VTOL competition. So going through that process and, and being successful was uh, was fantastic for us. It really allowed us to accelerate the development. Um, you know, they came up and audited our facility and took a look at what we've done. And I'd like to think they were, they were quite happy with uh, what they saw. I mean, we had the the half-scale prototype uh, largely put together at that point. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it really allowed us, that grant really allowed us to accelerate the development. Um, it also gets us our foot in the door for the follow-on high-speed VTOL challenges and really uh, a lot of different uh, other, uh, I guess, competitions that are being set up in the United States uh, right now for that. So the USDOD is very interested in runway independent ops. And, uh, you know, again, having a, having a machine that can take off and land vertically uh, just like a helicopter, but go about twice as fast, it opens up a lot of interesting military missions uh, as well. It's great to see sort of the significance of that. And as you said, that partnership and having the knowledge uh, and expertise of the US Air Force to really make this industry the, the success we all want it to be as well. And I think their invaluable advice to sort of help you sort of get through that, I think is going to be really critical, both, as I said, now, but also those that are kind of on their beginning journey to, to sort of certification and commercialization as well. Now, another really exciting point from Horizon is the fact that you've recently embarked on your Series A financing round. Now, for an industry that's only starting to begin to take shape, I'd love to get an idea of you from what those challenges are from uh, a company like Horizon in securing that long-term investment. Well, we've been fortunate. I mean, we've had a number of very supportive uh, folks following us for quite some time. So they've seen the progress, the, you know, the, the AFWorks win and, and they've seen the half scale prototype come to life and, um, you know, and, and seen the, the company grow and mature. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, we're pretty fortunate. Yeah. So we're uh, currently raising a series A, but right now, I think, you know, it's hard for some investors in this space, like Randy pointed out on your previous podcast, um, there's a lot of noise in the marketplace is the way he put it, I think. So there are honestly just a lot of bad designs. I mean, a lot of things that look great on the, you know, from a rendering perspective. Um, but I mean, from a physics perspective, they're just a non-starter. So even from a physics, you know, you got to, you got to have your physics sorted out and then you have, you have, you have to have your um, aerospace engineering portion sorted out and you have to have your operational concept um, sorted out. And I think, you know, when the first pillar is not even there, it, it, it's kind of hard to take some of them seriously. So again, a lot of, a lot of designs look great. Um, but, you know, one thing we've learned and, you know, we knew ahead of time, you know, to take something like batteries, for example, you know, the people that quote, you know, 321 hours per kilogram. So a certain, you know, very high for, for the, for the layperson out there, very high metric for these amazing batteries. Well, you realize that a lot of these technologies are not commercially available, first of all. So then when you put them through the filter of what's commercially available, 
Now maybe, you know, you're at two thirds of that energy density. And now when you say, well, they need to go a couple thousand cycles and they need to operate in the cold and you can only use, you know, about 85 to 15%. So 70% of the overall battery moat uh, will be usable. So 30% is completely unusable most of the time. Oh, and by the way, they have to be packed in a aerospace grade um, setup with fire suppression and all that sort of stuff. You know, now you're, you're taking that number and halving it again. And so the the practical aerospace engineering challenges, you know, tend to take those fancy renderings and, you know, flying car concepts uh, and, you know, make them kind of non-starters from the beginning. So I think the investors are having a, you know, initially we're having a tough time wading through the 700 plus different designs. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of excellent concepts uh, as well. Um and I think, you know, some of those companies now that, you know, that have some deep operational experience, you know, Beta is a great example where Kyle leads a company where most of his uh, workforce is our pilots and he highly encourages pilot training. And same with us. I mean, most of our uh, folks uh, on the technical team are pilots and we have folks that have designed and built and flown brand new clean sheet design aircraft. You know, a lot of, not a lot of teams, uh, I think, have that sort of depth of, uh, of experience. And I think that that is starting to shine through. So some trends that we've seen, and again, we see investors asking these same questions now are, okay, you know, what's your power system? What, you know, where are you going to get your batteries? What, what sort of, you know, power density do you need or energy density do you need on the battery side? Uh, are you hybrid electric? Um, and, you know, do you have a dual source uh, you know, for your electricity? Anyway, a lot of more sophisticated questions uh, coming from the investors. So um, I, I see the, the industry maturing from that perspective. Um, anyway, so uh, all that to say that uh, I think there'll be some consolidation pretty soon. I think uh, some of the more viable, operationally durable and safe designs will start shining through. And uh, I think we're going to be one of them. I'd love to get your thoughts on the certification process. What route... Horizon is taken um, and where kind of if you're seeing any trends from that point of view in, in that topic because it's, it's it's one that I think a lot of people are taking a lot of notice of because also an electric aircraft I know Pipistrol um, had the first one to be certified by IASA but it's a new type of aircraft really so I'd love to get your thoughts on, on that and the challenges that I can't imagine the the FAA or IASA or any other regulation body might be having to go through to, to get to this stage. Well, great question. And I think, you know, companies have to be focusing on it right from the, right from the start almost, you know, and, and there, there will, there are designs out there that I see uh, that are not viable from a certification perspective. So they might have the physics sorted out. Um, you know, they might have the aerospace engineering um, all figured out and to make it fly, uh, but you also have to be able to certify it. And so engaging the certification bodies early is important. So we've already had initial discussions with the FAA, they actually proactively reached out, which is fantastic, um, alongside Transport Canada. And, you know, in, in Canada, we're fortunate here, uh, where we have a smaller regulate, regulatory body, but they're a little more agile when it comes to flexibility to, uh, yeah, flexibility to uh, get in early and, 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 and kind of work with uh, the companies instead of, you know, the FAA does a great job, don't get me wrong, but they're inundated, right? You know, of those 700 different designs, probably 695 of them are south of the border. And so that's a, that's a operational challenge um, for the FAA and Transport Canada, again, a little smaller, uh, a little more personalized service. And they also uh, up here have some, some fantastic experience with powered lift. Um, 
And so we're going to be engaging also some experts in the field that have done this before, that have been through certification processes on, on, um, on different aircraft. And uh, I, yeah, again, that's I think those are the key. So early uh, engagement with the regulatory bodies, having a concept that is shaped so that it will be successful during the certification process. Um, and again, as I had mentioned previously, um, having ways to get the required data and to you know push the design along to the point where um, now certification becomes a a more viable process, um, and so that uh, that's kind of the way we're the way we're going with that. And we're we're pretty fortunate to, that we've had some of those discussions. Thanks ever so much for that, Brandon. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, there's a lot that we've covered, and I'm sure we could cover more uh, in in sort of future conversations too. But I'd like to finish off um, our podcast episode for now, really to ask if you're able to share any final thoughts that we've not already en- mentioned or anything that you'd like to add, you know, anything that you, you've seen in your work with Horizon about the industry as a whole or anything you feel you'd like to add that um, you feel would be of value to our audience because we've got many that listen to these that are fairly new to the industry and those that are, are very much veterans uh, and, and full of knowledge and expertise like your good self. So any final thoughts before we finish? Yeah, well, thanks uh, again, Jason. I think the main message is it's a pretty exciting time right now. So now we're seeing, you know, operational use cases start to spring up. Um, again, there was a corridor established over New York, a 50 mile corridor, if I'm, my memory serves me correctly for drones and potential AM use. I think Archer just announced um, like a Newark to Manhattan um, use case that it's uh, setting up. So, I mean, this is happening right now, I think, which is, uh, which is pretty exciting. So, you know, for the past five years, it's been a lot of promises, but now, you know, this is actually happening, which I think is, is pretty exciting. Um, there's some great work on some studies now that's showing, you know, practical short to medium term benefits. I mean, Nexa Capital is a great one. Mike Diamond and, the, and his crew there, uh, you know, did a great study for for uh, Ohio, the state of Ohio. I think they were bringing in close to 15,000 jobs, high tech jobs, with 15 million or 15 billion of additional economic activity over the next couple of decades. Um, and again, it's a, like I said, these the reality is playing out. So now, not only have we thought about it enough, now we're actually, you know, what I like to do is is get things into the real world, build them, uh, and, and get those use cases going, and 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 refine it in the real world. So I think that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Um, I'm also pretty proud of our team um, and the progress we made in a pretty short period of time, and hopefully we'll have some more news here uh, quite shortly. Um, yeah, I mean, 2023 will be a very transformative year for Horizon Aircraft as we shift focus uh, to explore the full flight regime of our aircraft and and honestly move on to the piloted prototype, which is, uh, again, going to be coming sooner rather than later. So really appreciate the opportunity, Jason. Thank you. And uh, I mean, we could talk for another couple hours about a lot of this stuff, but uh, I guess we got to call it sometime. Yeah, no, absolutely, Brandon. It, always a pleasure talking to you. I'm really looking forward to hearing more developments about the Cavalry X5. Sending all our best to the uh, the team at Horizon and uh, we'd love to have you on for another conversation. I think, as you said, with all the work that you're doing, not only now, but also in 2023, there's scope for, for more conversation, more insight. So until then, thank you once again and uh, very much appreciate you joining us for this podcast. Oh, thanks for the opportunity, Jason. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to be featured in one of our podcasts or there's something you feel we should be talking about, then please send me an email at editorial at evtolinsights.com. We'll be back soon with another episode, so look out for it on whichever podcast platform you use. Goodbye.